KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Welcome. It's always a treat to be with you for two hours on a Sunday. Uh, If you don't know me, let me tell you that I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I am not a practicing clinician, but I am a teacher. I teach developmental psychology and I teach psychology of health counseling at California State University Channel Islands. I was listening to the Bill Handel show this week and he didn't know where Cal State Channel Islands was. He kept saying it was in Malarkeyville or something. It's in Camarillo, just inland from Point Magoo. So I have a fabulous commute up along PCH. Uh, I'm very interested in the connection between mind and body. Did you know, you know, during Freud's time, and he was really the beginning of psychosomatic. Soma means body psychopsychology, psychosomatic illness. There's actually a question on my health exam for my students where I say, true or false, when somebody has physical symptoms and the doctors can find nothing physically wrong and they are considered to have a psychosomatic illness, that means that they are imagining the symptoms True or false? And I'm surprised, even though I teach it and I say it, that 50% of my students get this wrong. They're not imagining it. They're not making it up. Their body creates real illness out of mental disorders, whether it is coping with stress, whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, mood disorders, uh, personality disorders. Your mental health can affect your body's health in a real way. And of course, in Freud's time in Victorian England, he was dealing with a diagnosis called hysteria. Hysteria doesn't really exist as we know it, not in that same way today. But back in Europe, in Victorian times, when women were so very repressed, they would sometimes have things like spontaneous um, blindness or paralysis The limbs wouldn't work and doctors would look hard and find nothing wrong. And eventually they would end up in Dr. Freud's office and through talk therapy, through the ability to give voice to their feelings. And hey, let's talk about it. These were women who were very repressed. Um, They had no choice for survival except to hook up with a man. And if he was a bad man, then their life was bad Um, or to become a prostitute, you know, whenever we repress women. Women either make men marry them for survival or they rent it out by the hour for survival. Anyway, the choices weren't good. And so their voice, their bodies spoke for them with illness. So uh, I want to talk a lot today about our bodies and our minds and mental health. We are hopefully near the end of one of the worst flu seasons I think we have seen in many, many years. Um, I know many friends who were indeed on their back, sometimes for weeks. Two of them were hospitalized. Uh, The flu then went into the lungs and then it became pneumonia, etc. And it's just, we keep hearing bad flu season, bad flu season. My own daughter, who's 14, had three major flus this winter. And I keep saying like past tense, but you know, it's not really over for another few weeks, right? We got to be well into April before flu season is over. And uh, I took her to the pediatrician and I'm like, why this year? Why is she so sick? What's going on? And she said, um, 
well, is there anything that she's touching? And then she's touching her face because the pediatrician told a story that even though she alcohol swabs everything, her stethoscope, everything she touches, she was still at the beginning of her career getting sick quite regularly, dealing with sick kids who wouldn't. And finally she realized one day it was the damn pen that she would hand the pen to patients or patients' parents to sign forms. She would leave it on the counter while she left the room. She'd come back into the exam room later. She'd alcohol swab everything they'd touch, but she forgot the pen. And as soon as she just started alcohol swabbing her pen after every single patient, she got sick far less often. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's my kid? What's different about my kid this flu season? Is there any behavior? Is she in any environment? What is causing? Because the pediatrician says, I, I was always of the belief that most of this stuff is airborne. And she said, no, it's surfaces. It's touching surfaces. So I'm thinking and thinking, and I'm like, oh, I have it. Oh, my goodness. Why didn't I realize this earlier? This is the first winter season where my 14-year-old has Invisalign. Do you know what Invisalign means? Three times a day. You wear them 22 hours a day, those plastic braces. That's what I'm talking about, right? But you take them out to eat. So do you think during, say, nutrition break, which is a whopping 15 minutes long, that she has time to run to the bathroom, wash her hands, remove her Invisalign, put them in an antiseptic case, uh, go eat, go back, wash her hands again, touch the Invisalign, put them back in? No, no, no. There's no time in her day. What does she do? She pops them out with dirty hands that has touched everything else in that darn school and then pops, puts them in her pocket, her pocket. And then she remembers them probably when she gets back to class and just takes her hands off the dirty desk and reaches into her pocket and puts this Invisalign back on her teeth. So this is the worst flu season for her. I asked the pediatrician any solutions to this besides running to the bathroom constantly and washing her hands and the Invisalign. She goes, at the very least, have her use hand sanitizer. So now I watch her and she does reach in her backpack and grab that hand sanitizer. I mean, it helps. It doesn't kill all the germs and it's probably putting... All this chemicals on her hands. I don't want to think about it. She does say now that her hands are really, really dry, and she's always asking for a lotion and moisturizer on her hands. (laughs) So did you have a bad cold or a flu this year? And let me ask you this. Were you treated with antibiotics, antiviral drugs like that Tamiflu, or antifungal drugs? If you were... I want you to listen closely because when we come back, there is now a correlation between these drugs and some forms of mental illness. I'll tell you about the research when we come back and how you can better bounce back from a flu or cold. You are listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We'll take a news break and be right back. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640. We are talking about the connection between mind and body and our physical health as it relates to our mental health. So listen to this. If you had a bad flu or a bad cold this season and you were treated with antibiotics, antiviral drugs, or antifungal drugs, you're actually more likely to develop a mental illness. Whoa. Okay, listen to this. Danish researchers found a correlation between mild and more serious infections that require treatment 
and mental illness such as depression or even schizophrenia. Okay, and before you say, oh, well, every time they have one study that says one thing, you find another study that says something else. Let me tell you about the quality of this research. This study was carried out. It's a longitudinal study between 1995 and 2013. Wow, it's an 18-year study. And it was carried out on 76,000, more than 76,000 people. Ooh, okay. And what they found is that if these people were treated with antibiotics, antiviral drugs, or antifungal drugs, they are more likely to develop mental illness. Um, and some related studies show that the inflammation that accompanies infection might also be the issue. Amazing, huh? So here's what I want you to know. Whether you've had a flu or not, or other infections this winter, you got to visit your doctor. If you have symptoms like uh, persistent sadness, mental confusion, well, some of us have that every day anyway, but if it's different than usual, persistent anxiety, are you worrying all the time? Auditory or visual hallucinations, don't waste time, get to the doctor. If your sleep and wake cycle is disturbed, if you're having bouts of mania, yeah, and you find yourself at three in the morning on Amazon over shopping like a shopaholic, this is called mania, don't do it. Or even bouts of extreme energy, it seems great, but there's a downside to it, okay? Unmanageable or explosive anger, thoughts of self-harm or harming others. If any of these symptoms have affected you, And if you've had a flu and been treated for a flu or infections this winter, I want you to go to your doctor and report this research. Okay. For the rest of us, whether you've taken medications or not, there are lots of ways that you can bounce back from a flu or cold. And let me go over some of them. I know you've heard this before, but now there's research to show it's really true. Air out your home. I don't care how cold it is. Open those windows. Um... It can really kill some germs. And it's good to actually do one room at a time. Open all the windows in that room, close it off from the rest of the house, and leave it open for a few hours. If you're doing the bedroom, though, you also have to remove all the bed linens and throw them all in the wash. You don't necessarily have to bleach them. Just do some hot water. But remember, stuff lives on these surfaces. So airing out your home is not just an old wives' tale. It can help reduce future infections. Uh, Do I need to tell you this? Vacuum, dust, clean, do laundry. Cleanliness is not just for the sake of killing germs, by the way. Did you know that messy places and dirty ones are linked to depression and anxiety? And I will tell you this. My best anti-anxiety pill is to clean my kitchen. Do not laugh. I have an all-white kitchen. White kitchen counters, white cabinets. I mean, like they're like quartz. They have like pattern in them. They're really pretty pretty counters. And you can see every spot and stain, every dirty dish stands out like a sore thumb. And so I come home and before I can decompress, I have to make my kitchen look like architectural digest, look like a shoot for a decorating magazine. I clean it and I organize the few things that are on the counter. I like less is more. And I can tell you that that makes me feel better. On the flip side, if you are having a lot of mess and deorganization in your life, that these are signs that you're becoming disorganized inside. So mess contributes to stress. Don't pile on the stress. Tidy it up. Um, if you're recovering from a cold or flu, start eating normally again. 
even if you have little or no appetite, um, I want you having soup, protein, fruits and vegetables. You don't need carbohydrates. Forget about the bread and the pasta and the rice, okay? Healthy fats like nut fats, avocado oil. My doctor likes to say, Evo, Avo is what you should be eating. Evo, extra virgin olive oil. Avo, avocado oil. That's how I remember it, right? Um, So a good diet can help reduce symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, You might consider supplementation. Um, If you're not sure what to take, you can check with a holistic nutritionist or registered dietitian. Very important. Don't just take a bunch of junk you buy on the internet, please. I actually know somebody who ordered some diet pills off the internet and she didn't know that they suppress your alcohol tolerance. They lower your, and she would have one glass of wine and, you know, thinking she was safe to drive and be really, really drunk. So no, 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 no. Um, Hey, if you're recovered and you're starting to get your strength back, it's the time to exercise. No doubt about it. Exercise has been proven to improve your mood, but also there have been lots of research studies to link a regular exercise regime with a strong and robust immune system. Makes your immune system more powerful. This is a good one, right? Uh, if you've had some sleep problems, time to reset your sleep co- clock. This means no matter how tired you are, get up at the same time every morning. Go to bed at the same time. No electronics in the bedroom. A cool bedroom. Put your warm cheek on cool sheets at night, right? Calm. Spend an hour winding down with no media. Just read, have dim light, maybe do some meditation. Um, I do a thing in my health with, in my health class with my students where we uh, do some meditation and we do a body scan. And every time we exhale, we look for tension in our muscles and let it relax. Finally, I want to remind you, don't be shy about reaching out for help. If you're not doing okay mentally or physically, you have to ask friends, family, and please get over any stigma you might have about mental health issues, okay? You might need help grocery shopping, tidying up, transportation to appointments. People want to help. You just have to ask. And don't be afraid to call doctors if you need professionals, okay? We got to get over this whole idea of We should suffer alone in silence. But the good news is we are now heading into the spring. Yay! I think it is spring. It actually officially became spring. And so, therefore, flu season will be behind us. And hopefully this awful flu season will be behind us pretty soon. And I want to remind you that come September and October, you'll want to get your flu shot. Okay? Don't be an anti-vax person There's a good reason why we have vaccinations, especially flu vaccinations. They save lives. So when we come back, I have some guests who are very, very concerned with the connection between mind and body. A medical doctor and a neuroscientist who've written a book called The Listening Cure that teaches us how to listen to our bodies to stay healthier. We'll have it when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. KFI AM 640, you are back with Dr. Wendy Walsh on the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. And these, this show I am devoting 
to the connection between our minds and our bodies. It's not two separate things, right? And I am so delighted to have two guests with me here in the studio, Dr. Chris Gilbert and Dr. Eric Hazeltine, um, authors, cohorts, marital couple who have written amazing books. But the one that I and welcome, by the way, thank you for being with me. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, the one, and he's a neuroscientist, and Chris, you're the MD. A physician, right. yes. I'm going to call you Dr. Chris and Dr. Eric so that they know who you are. Um, and your book, The Listening Cure, I, I read over the weekend. I plowed through it quickly. I love your metaphors. I loved your examples. And I think it's a book for everybody who wants to understand greater the mind-body connection. So to begin our little chat, why don't you tell me a little bit about The Listening Cure and your healing secrets? How did this book come about? The book came about when I was working... I did several types of work. I worked in Paris, France as a physician. I worked for Doctors Without Borders in Africa and in Asia. Then I worked in California. And everywhere I could find that there was a lot of symptoms, physical symptoms, that were due to emotional problems. And the studies at Kaiser shows that 80% of primary care physicians' office visits for uh, physical symptoms are due to emotional or behavioral problems 80 percent 80 percent yes that's pretty huge and how do you treat this um and i started just like every physician to give medications regular conventional medications but that didn't satisfy me so afterwards i said well what let me find out what caused the symptoms what was at the origin and then when people had a very strong like backache or stomachache, I would tell them, well, let's try to give your body a voice, your body part a voice. And by those two techniques together, we managed to find the origin, the emotional origin of the problem and to uh, treat it. So when you talk about the listening cure, it's, it's about listening to yeah. our body. Yes, listen to our body. And Dr. Eric, you believe... There, this isn't just hocus pocus, somebody imagining. There's real neurobiological events going on. Can you explain it a little bit in words we can understand? <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll break the answer into two parts. First, when Dr. Chris talks about the body, she uses it metaphorically in an operational practical sense. When I talk about it, I look at the brain and the representation of the body in the brain and how that part of the brain can actually hold memories and know things that your conscious mind cannot know. So, for example, in our brain, we have a cerebral cortex, which responds to sensory and motor information. And when something happens, for example, if we don't like our mother-in-law, and every time we go to visit, our back tightens up, associations are formed in the cortex between mother-in-law, back pain, and the stress. And so that part of the brain that is originally stimulated by sensory input is the part that actually stores the memory. So when you're, for example, remembering the touch of someone, you're actually reactivating the sensory neurons that experience it in the first place. So the part of your body that represents your back remembers, literally, in the brain, new circuits are formed, the sensory part of the back remembers the connection between mother-in-law and pain. So that's the first answer. So is the first healing cure to not visit the mother-in-law? Yes. <laughs> yes, a mother-in-law-itis. 
<laughs> exactly. Yes. You know, as you're saying that, it gives me more evidence. I don't know if you know this decorating lady who has all these books. I don't even think she speaks English. Marie Kondo, right? Is that her name? Maria Kondo? And she believes that you should hold an object. She's a big purger getting rid of stuff in your life because she thinks that they hold emotional value. And you should hold an object, look at it, and ask the question, does this object bring me joy? Mm-hmm. And if it does not, you must get rid of it in your house. And, at the, you know, it sounds kind of funny, but I am now aware, because I'm a big purger and I have not a lot in my house, but there are a couple items that bug me, you know, either because I purchased it when I was in a bad mood or I was staying at someone's house, a relative's house that got me upset and I ran out to go shopping as retail therapy. And now I have this item and it's I'm reminded of the fight right. every time I look at this That's item. That's right. Our brain associates stimulus A with stimulus B and forms an association. Pavlov's new, dog. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And new synapses are formed, and they generally form in the area of the brain that is stimulated in the first place. So when Dr. Chris talks about the body and says the back has a voice, literally what's happening in the brain is that part of the brain that represents the back, both the motor and sensory, actually has memories of what happened that may not be consciously accessible to you. And so this is where Dr. Chris uses a gestalt technique where she bypasses the conscious mind and projects the self into that body part. And so her technique says, I am the back. I am feeling this. And that allows you to get around your consciousness into those unconscious memories. So before we get into the actual technique, um, are there any particular areas that the brain likes to mess with the most? I know you mentioned back. Stomach, another one. Are there more common areas than others? Oh, there's so many. Uh, Stomach is another one. Uh, Head, headaches is another one. Uh, depression, of course, another one. Legs, leg pains is another one. Uh, there's pretty much every, the skin also is another one. Mm-hmm. People come up with rushes, and that's also very often related to a strong emotion. Uh, I had a friend going through a divorce, mm-hmm. and she got from her manicurist, of course, a nail fungus underneath the nail on her wedding band finger. Mm. and the nail was literally lifting off and separating from her entire finger and only on the wedding band finger. Mm-hmm. And as soon as her divorce was complete, it just spontaneously healed. Yeah. Yep, well, that's it. That's a good example. Yeah. The body knows and the body gives us symbols, and uh, we should not ignore them. Yeah, what happens with the immune system in this case is that when we have emotions that are bottled up, it causes conflict and uncertainty and some degree of hopelessness and helplessness, which essentially creates an overdose of stress hormones, particularly cortisol and adrenaline. And what cortisol does is it really damages your immune system mm. and will lead to a fungal infection, for example. Right. So it does, it depresses your immune system, opening you up to infection and cancer. And on the other hand, it disrupts the regulatory mechanism that stops your immune system from attacking healthy cells. So many disorders, such as irritable bowel syndrome, arthritis, asthma, are really a symptom of chronic stress and over-secretion of cortisol. And on that note, I also had a friend who was brought up in a family where everybody was obese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she was naturally thin because she had irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And only after she left her family of origin, eventually married and had a child, was she relieved from this pain. But she spent most of her young life in hospitals 
with IBS. Mm-hmm. And that was her way of saying, I'm not going to eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the good way to think about it is that when you have inner conflict, mm-hmm. repressed emotions, uh, it's like your body is a battleground mm-hmm. and becomes collateral damage from the combatants. Like we have an urge to strangle our boss and an urge to keep quiet and keep our job. Not my boss here. I no. love my boss. Uh, I never have a nurse to strangle her. <laughs> One's boss. Yes. Um, and so that conflict, uh, it creates lots of inner tension, release of stress hormones, but it damages your body. Just to imagine you're a battlefield on which the combatants fight and mm-hmm. your body pays the price. So when we come back, I want to, Dr. Chris, talk about the specific technique and what people can even do at home. And To underscore what you just said, Dr. Eric, is that I tell my health students at the beginning of the semester every time they take a class called Psychology of Health Counseling from me, is I say right now, every cell in your body is poised for battle. And indeed, there is a war going on right now. And every thought you have, every food you put inside your um, body is either helping the good guys or the bad guys. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's how we launch the semester when we think about health. We'll talk more about this when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. I'm with my guests, Dr. Chris Gilbert and Dr. Eric Hazeltine. The book is called The Listening Cure. Let's take a news break. We'll be right back. Oh, help me, please, doctor. We're back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. I'm so excited to have my guests here, Dr. Chris Gilbert and Dr. Eric Hazeltine. And Dr. Chris, I would be remiss if I did not mention that didn't you get an honorable award from Psychology Today? I read so much of the stuff you write. Yes, I did. Yeah, my blog was uh, the second most popular blog yesterday. What's Two the blog se- called? So we can. So now we <laughs> can make it the most popular blog. <laughs> Two secrets your doctor will never tell you. Oh, so do we have to go to the blog to learn the two secrets? Why don't you give us one secret now? And make everybody else go to psychologytoday.com and search the words two secrets your doctor will never tell you. <laughs> so what's one of the secrets? One of the secrets is that doctors are sometimes depressed themselves and very often stressed out. And they could be suicidal themselves. So they can take medications uh, that will impair their judgment is one of the secrets. Oh, that's a good secret. Now, I do remember... I always have an anecdote with every story. When I had postpartum depression after my second child, going to see a a psychiatrist who specialized in this, and um, she put me on Zoloft for a few months until I felt better, and uh, I go to one appointment, and she looked very depressed and down, and she's dealing with depressed moms, all of them, and I said, I actually asked her, are you okay today? And she said, I just found out I'm pregnant for the fourth time. And I said, what a sucker for punishment. But now I look back at it and I'm like, whoa, mm-hmm. she is literally like in the business and in the business. Mm-hmm. How fascinating. Okay. Before the break, I was telling you that I tell my health psychology students that there's a war going on in their bodies all the time. And every thought they have, every behavior they do, every food they intake or alcohol or any drink is either helping the good guys or the bad guys. That, to me, was a metaphor. But, Dr. Eric, you say that's a reality in our gut. That is a reality. One of the hot areas of biology today is the biome that we have. It turns out that only 10% of the cells of our body have our DNA. The other 90% are bacteria, viruses, fungi, and archaea. A bulk of these are in your gut. The troops. The troops. Now, these are called commensal bacteria in your gut, but they can get out of whack. 
And it turns out that people who are obese have a different population of those bugs than people who are not obese. And in fact, research has shown that if you transplant the biota from the gut of an obese person into a normal weighted rat, that rat gets fat. Wow. And so the way we think that works is that the bacteria have ways of fighting each other and kind of vying and competing for space in your gut. So the bad bacteria that like starch and sugar will kill off the good bacteria that like more healthy things. And the diabolical thing is that those bacteria will actually secrete pleasure neurotransmitters that cause your brain to get a reward when you eat what those bacteria want. So The sugar high. Exactly. And so the question is, who's in charge, you or your gut bacteria? Okay, so I don't know if you know this, but two years ago, my cardiologist put me on a no sugar, no grain diet. 20 pounds fell off me. I didn't even know Mm -hmm. I had weight to lose. And everything changed. My memory, my quickness, my health. I have not been sick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had one little cold I remember in September that lasted literally one day. And we've been through the worst flu season ever. I've had snot-nosed kids in my bed during their flus. Nothing. My immune system's functioning so well. I should knock on wood when I say that, right? (laughs) Um, Do you think that this diet is what's changed everything? It's probably, yes. Um, The gut bacteria have a huge role in mediating your immune response. Mm -hmm. We now know that when they're out of whack, your immune system gets out of whack. For example, people with Crohn's disease, Mm -hmm. which is a chronic inflammatory bowel disease, Uh, almost always have an imbalance of bacteria. And the question on the table now, is that a symptom or the cause? There are some who think that the primary disorder is actually a disorder of the bacteria. Wow. So Mm -hmm. remember, folks, we are literally what we eat, Mm -hmm. and food is medicine. Mm -hmm. All right, so Dr. Chris, by the time they get to you (laughs) with their pain and their fighting bacteria, you have the most interesting technique that I just want to commend you as a medical doctor because, you know, medical doctors tend to be the hard science people, and you're married to one, so, you know, present company excluded here, um, who just want to give out drugs and deal with the biology of the fact. What was it in you that made you go, no, I got to deal with the psychology here as well if I'm going to really heal my patients? Well, that's because a lot of my patients were very sensitive to drugs. So whenever I would give one drug, they would get side effects from that drug. Then I would give another medication to counter that side effect of the drug. And then they would get another side effect from that second drug. So then I would get, give them a third drug. So pretty soon the person would have like 10 drugs because they were extra sensitive. And I said, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to go. And everything that I try on people, usually I try on me first. And I, and I said, you know, let me try on me if I have a symptom and let me see if there's a way to get rid of it without any medication. You mean you as a non-sick person would try out drugs? Yeah, for... What a like, dedicated doctor. <laughs> like, like for a cold, for example, mm-hmm. or for, for the flu or for, you know, little headaches or little back pain or little mm-hmm. knee pain. It's very interesting. I used to have a dermatologist who always had like a fried face in age in places. And I'd say, what are you doing? He goes, trying out new lasers. <laughs> he would always try it out yeah. on himself. <laughs> yeah, every technique. Like, so I do, at the end of each chapter, there is a practical, there are practical exercises. And each of those exercises I do on a regular basis. And that's what keeps me healthy. Usually. So let's start at the beginning. Somebody comes into your office, hypothetically, 
they're complaining about uh, stomach pain or back pain. How do you tell them to talk to their body? What's the, what's the actual technique? The actual technique is very fast. Is I just ask the person to focus on their stomach, for example, or on their back. Like, for example, let's do it all together right now. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on our stomach. Okay. And take a couple of deep breaths. Mm. <sighs> <laughs> it's the meditation show. Mm-hmm. If you're driving, do not yeah. close your eyes. And then focus on your stomach. And if your stomach had a voice, what would it say? Would it say, I'm empty, I'm full, I'm too full, I eat too much, I, I'm craving something? What, what would it say? Let's right now, this. my stomach is saying I'm a little nervous. Okay. And I can feel now I didn't wasn't aware until I relaxed and I felt those chemicals. And it's because I have a trip coming up and there's a big plane flight that always causes some nerves. There's uh, a, a little potential litigation thing happening in my life that involves lawyers that are never fun. Mm. Uh, and then there's worry about my child's health. And it all just came into one mm. chemical thing. So your stomach says, I am in knots, maybe? I mean, not because I'm, I'm well, worried. Well, it feels more like an acid chemical feeling, mm-hmm. not really knots. I can just feel like uh, mm-hmm. up on this side, I can just feel like a spicy chemical. Mm-hmm. So the stomach says, I have some spicy chemicals in me. Yes. Okay. Do you know your stomach has taste buds in it? You're kidding. I am not kidding. So well, when you say spicy, yeah, it probably is literal. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't had anything spicy to eat today, so it's bringing it up from my nerves, mm-hmm. I think. That's right. So, Eric, if your stomach had a voice, what would it say? Eric fed me too much this morning. <laughs> I told him I didn't want those blueberry pancakes, and he ate too many. <laughs> oh, oh, high carb. <laughs> and if my stomach had a voice, what would it say? It would say, oh, I am nervous because I'm doing, I've, I've got some really knots in me because I'm doing this radio interview, but I ate just right, but I'm nervous. Joey, producer Joey, Joey. did you ask your stomach what it's feeling? Yeah, I did, actually. And And, uh, somewhere in the same uh, realm as you, believe it or not, and you, a little bit of the nervousness, um, you know, just sort of a little kind of like floating on the top of my stomach, maybe like a layer of nervousness over it, I would say. We have that effect on people. (laughs) (laughs) But see how easy it is to give the stomach a voice once you get. So how does that heal people? Just having the stomach say, I have a feeling in it. Because the body has needs that the mind is usually not aware of. Like the, the stomach will have needs to eat healthy foods. There's some foods that the stomach is not going to be happy digesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, um, the back has needs. So if you give your back a voice, sometimes the your mind will not be aware of what your back needs. So when we come back, I want to hear a couple of the stories. And I know you, you, uh, the stories in your book are composites of patients, but very similar to the kinds of stuff that happens. Uh, I want to hear stories of healing. And finally, you very kindly paperclipped the chapter on <laughs> sex, but I do practice delayed gratification and did not read it until I got to that section mm. in the book. Uh, and so let's talk about our sex lives and our mental health when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640. Doctor, doctor, give 
Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640. You can follow me on social media. My handle everywhere is at DR, you know, the short form for doctor, DR, Wendy Walsh. Wendy, like Peter Pan, Wendy Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. Did you know, Joey, that anybody named Wendy was born somewhere between about 1958 and 65 or something? Really? Yeah. It's, wow. it's like the most, because the movie Peter Pan was released in America okay. or the book or something, and all the pregnant moms were reading it to their kids uh-huh. or taking them to see the movie. Mm-hmm. And the name was invented by, oh gosh, why am I suddenly drawing a blank? The writer of Peter Pan, uh, Finding Neverland. Oh, you're going to have to look it up for me, Joey, because I just suddenly, uh, I am Barry, or I something Barry, Barry. Anyway, so the name was Gwendolyn. It was the common German name given to British girls, Gwendolyn. Ah, And for short, they would call her Gwendy. And then Barry was the first one in his book, Peter Pan, to the boy who never grew up, to take off the G and make a Wendy. And he invented the name. That is super interesting, actually. Wow. So he invented the name Wendy. He invented the name Wendy. Um, And here's another little... I'm getting off topic, but this is interesting to me, so I hope hope it's interesting to you. (laughs) So I'm sure my mother named me Wendy because of that darn book. But guess what? She had, I've talked about this on the show before, and he's been a guest. She had a teenage pregnancy in the 1940s that she could not talk about because the kind of shame that patriarchy put on women and girls for sexual behavior back then. And um, so this baby was given up for adoption. She named him Michael because she had given him to St. Michael's in Toronto to facilitate the adoption. But two years later, because back in the 40s, all men owned babies. So adoptions weren't actually complete for two years later because I I found her signature. I've pulled his birth certificate, the adoption papers, and I saw her little teenage signature on the adoption papers two years later. His parents renamed him John. So she knew his name was Michael, changed John. Twelve years later, she gives birth to me. She names me Wendy, who, as you recall was the mother bird, Wendy, who took care of her brothers, Michael and John. Da-da-da! This is how the unconscious leaves clues. And so it wasn't until 20 years after her death that her last surviving sister, in a moment uh, after being in uh, deep dementia, had a moment of lucidity and told one of her adult children, go find Wendy in California, tell her she has another brother. And that led me on an odyssey through the internet to find my brother, Mike. Oh, he changed his name back to Mike so his mother could find him. I know. Here he is, 66 years old, so happy to have a family. I mean, he was adopted by a great family, but he had no siblings. And uh, so now I have new nieces and nephews, new grandnieces, and we've brought him right into the family. It's pretty amazing. That is pretty cool. Okay. So speaking of which, I want to tell you another story about my mother. And I believe that my mother's psychic pain from the shame of giving up this pregnancy gave her a mental health condition that did not even have a name in the 1960s. In fact, it did not get a name until 1975, and it is called Munchausen by proxy. Munchausen by proxy is usually happens in a relationship where the mother feels abandoned or alienated by the husband and in a bid to try to get his attention and feeling herself to be unlovable, instead has a sick child. And so unconsciously, this is not conscious, 
unconsciously, every little ache and pain a child complains about, she runs the child off to doctors. And, you know, if you test a child or any human enough, you'll find something wrong. Trust me. And so in a weird way, mothers with Munchausen by proxy who have a deep need for love and attention collude with the medical industry, keyword industry, because there's a benefit to the doctors in seeing these quote-unquote patients regularly, um, and come up with a sick child. And also because children, um, a mother is their lifeline. A mother is everything they know emotionally. Children are particularly susceptible to the power of suggestion. So as a result, the mother, and this is not to blame the mother, unconsciously makes the child sick. Joey, if every day you walked into the office and I said, are you okay? You're not looking very well. Did you get enough sleep last night? Are you okay? I noticed the way you walked, you got an ache there? You got a headache? If I did that to you day in and day night, you would start to feel sick. I would know. I was sick. You I would know you were sick, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so if a mother does this to a child, because only because the mother is worried. So now we have a name for it. Uh, my mother, of course, was never diagnosed. And now you're going to say, well, what happened to you, Wendy? Just know I spent a lot of time in the hospital as a small child getting what I believe to be very unnecessary surgeries. And so that is part of my development. I should do an on-the-couch session with me where I just talk to myself about, every, oh, my gosh. We can put that up with all the other uh, hosts. That would be weird, actually. Maybe we should get a handle or somebody to, to do it to me, do an on-the-couch. He's, he's so busy, though. Uh, anyway, so my theory is today's Munchausen by proxy mom, and I apologize to you if you are this mother. This isn't to blame you, but to help you understand yourself better is the anti-vax mom, the anti-vaccination mom, the one who claims that vaccinations on babies will cause autism. Or There's no research. There's absolutely no research. But what you're doing unconsciously in trying to, quote-unquote, protect your child from some evil anti-vaccination or evil vaccination is you're making your child sick because now your child's immune system is not as strong as the other children. And whether it's what happened at Disneyland a few years ago where 70 kids came down with the measles because of too many anti-vax moms walking out there in the world with their kids. Or what happened just a few weeks ago in Dallas at the cheerleading competition that I was at where there was like 20,000 cheerleaders in the Dallas Convention Center. A big outbreak of mumps. We haven't seen measles and mumps in years. And lest you think that these old diseases are not serious. Children die of measles around the world all the time. I have an uncle who had polio, who has um, physical disabilities and handicaps for the rest of his life and is in a wheelchair. He spent nine of his first 18 years in hospital, in and out, in and out, battling polio. Thank God he lived, but many others died. So this isn't a lecture to say you're a bad person, anti-vax mom. It's a lecture to say, please... Get help for you and your family because there are other ways that you can have a bid for love, really. Um, Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation about our bodies and our minds and how we can keep healthy together. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Let's go to news break. show this is kfi am 640 my two fabulous guests here in the studio are dr chris gilbert and dr eric hasseldean uh the book is the listening cure dr chris you're a medical doctor 
Can you give me an example about how by teaching a patient to listen to their body, they got better? For example, I had a man coming to my office because of a six-month history of lower back pain. And he had tried a lot of anti-inflammatories, Tylenol. Uh, he was on opioids. Uh-oh. And nobody could figure out what was wrong with him. And those pills did not help him or helped him a little bit, but not that much. So I asked him when... Uh, the, the two questions I ask usually is, when did that start? And it started when he commuted three hours a day to get to his job. And uh, there was a new job. And then it was a very stressful job where he had to stay eight hours a Sounds day. Like my life. Sitting mm-hmm. down without moving. So I also, what I said, I gave his back a voice. I told him, if your back had a voice, what would it say? So I had him focus on his back and the back said that I'm very unhappy because I, I don't move. I'm in a car, immobile, not moving for three hours a day, driving. And then I'm at work, not moving. And I really want to stretch and I want to move and I want to do all kinds of physical exercise that would make me feel good, but I can't. Uh, and I've got all those contractions in my, in my muscles. So when I found this, when we found this out, I told him, why don't you, since your back, it's obvious that your back is not happy about being without moving for so many hours a day. Why don't you stretch every half hour or every hour, go for a walk, go up and down the stairs every hour, every other hour at work. And also, you know, maybe stop in your way to work, to stretch. So he did that and he started jogging just before going to his job and stretching on a regular basis. And with that, his back pain really decreased. And he was able to get off the, um, the opioids and all the medications. Yeah. Opioids. Frightening. Yeah. Um, The opioids are, are, they're addictive. So you don't want people to be addictive. So addictive. Um, Thank you for that. And the book is called The Listening Cure. Now, when you guys gave me the book, you read paperclipped, read paperclipped, the chapter on sex. And I thought it was very, very interesting. And I think, Dr. Eric, the most interesting part is that you believe that sex is very good for our health. And indeed, if there are sexual issues, we need to work through them to improve our overall health. Is that where I'm getting here? That's correct. That um, When there's sexual frustration... That creates stress. Stress leads to over-secretion of stress hormones, which compromises your immune system. And adrenaline, for example, causes back pain. Uh, Dr. John Sarno at New York University said that most back pain is due to suppressed anger. Wow. And so, for example, if you're angry because you're not getting sex, it's going to transfer to your lower back and you're going to get back pain. So, Dr. Chris, what about people who have sexual function issues that appear to be physiological, either male erectile dysfunction or vaginal pain, atrophy for women as they age? What, how do you recommend that they get the health benefits from a sex life if they're dealing with those pain issues? Well, that's or, different. Like for vaginal atrophy, for example, it's better to use uh, an estradiol uh, vaginal cream, maybe twice a day, twice a day, twice a week, 
mm-hmm. uh, that will make and, and there's a recent study that showed that it's actually also effective to um, give a lubricant uh, in the vagina but twice a week two or three times a week so that is a physical thing that women have to do as they get older to but rather than you know letting people just let their sex drive or their sex lives drop off your suggestion is that sex is so good for your health that you have to find a way to make it happen you have to find a way to get those endorphins going to get the those oxytocin going all those hormones are so healthy they will fight against any disease. They will help you fight against any disease. And they will make you feel wonderful without drugs. That's the best uh, possible uh, hormones. Yeah, I think so, sex is the best drug we have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, But the partner doesn't usually know what makes you happy. And we don't talk, couples don't talk about that. When I ask them... You know, do you know what makes your husband happy? Or do you know what makes your wife happy? Uh, they they don't really know. And have you had that conversation? They said no. So my way is to bypass those taboos, bypass the mind, and just get straight to the genitals. If your genitals... So wait, wait, wait. You actually sit a couple in an office yes. and have her talk as her vagina. Yes. And he talks as his penis. Yes. And they have a conversation. Yes. What do those conversations sound like? Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. Because those are things that you never knew. The partners never knew that this is what the, the, the other part was, was feeling. So, again, there is no taboo, no, no, no nothing interfering or down to primal feelings and primal is so attractive tell her about joey and chloe chloe names changed to protect the innocent yes those are uh, pseudonyms <laughs> not our joey. not this joey not our joey <laughs> uh, so uh, a couple came to see me and they were uh one year after being married but they didn't have sex anymore and they were depressed, and they were fatigued, and they came to see me for depression and fatigue. And you know me, I always ask about, you know, what's your sex life? I mean, that's what part of my questions. And they said, well, what sex life? We don't have any sex life anymore. But I said, this is not normal. You're in your 20s. You should have a sex life, right? So then they refused to talk about this. That's why I said, let's give your genitals a voice. Again, Get the minds of Joey and Chloe away in the corridors. Get them out and just bring us the genitals and let's have a conversation. So Joey's penis said, well, it's so frustrating to sleep every night next to my lovely wife and not be able to have some action. I really want her. I want to be inside of her and I can't. And it's just killing me inside not to be able to be with her to touch her and then by giving chloe's genitals a voice it chloe's vagina said i like very soft touch when joe's penis comes inside of me it is too fast it is too violent i want him to come very slowly inside of me in and out it is the story of history we are a crock pot. He is a microwave oven. <laughs> Here you go. We take some time to get warmed up. Here you go. 
And when uh, and uh, also the clitoris, as you know, has eight thousand nerve fibers, so it's extremely sensitive. So when I gave her clitoris a voice, she said that uh, the clitoris said, "Well, when Joe tax, touches me, it is too intense. He touches me uh, by too much pressure. I need very very soft touch because I'm so sensitive." So the the clitoris expressed exactly what it was feeling, the frustration it was feeling, but also said what it was wanting. And the key here is that this couple did not have good sexual communication skills when it was their two minds communicating. But when they transferred the energy and allowed their bodies to speak to each other, the conversation became easier? Yes, the conversation became easier because there's no minds anymore. It's just the genitals talking, so... We can't say anything. So could people try, by getting your book, The Listening Cure, are you hoping that people can try this on their own? They don't yes. need Dr. Chris to yes. have them screaming into pillows. You do have them screaming into pillows. I do have them screaming into pillows. It, it, it is a wonderful tool. I mean, when you're very angry at somebody uh, and you don't want to project your anger at that person, um, the best way is to put a bunch of pillows on your on your sofa bed, on your sofa, and just punch those pillows and then scream at those pillows and get the anger out this way, in a safe way, with nobody around. Make sure there's nobody around. And then this... (laughs) Or the neighbors will be calling 911. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And my favorite technique from your book before we go is um, the group therapy Mm. with your body. Making a circle of chairs and imagining... That sitting in each chair is a piece of your body. So your mind maybe or your brain in one area with the headaches and your stomach in another and your back in another and your genital. And you are not allowed to participate. Only the body parts can talk to each other and you give voice to each of them. I was like, okay, I know that's weird, but I'm going to try it because that is very interesting to me. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. All right, we have to go. Thank you so much for especially being in the studio. And I am going to subscribe to both your blogs, as everybody listening should. The book is called The Listening Cure. The doctors are Dr. Chris Gilbert and Dr. Eric Hazeltine. Did I? Hassel, Hassel. I have to think Hassel. Hazeltine. Uh, a married couple, but newlyweds. Yes. Yes. Oh. One year. Oh, Thank you so much for having us. So happy Thank to you. have you. You've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640. When we come back, does your man sound like a cheater? Well, apparently, women can detect infidelity in a person's voice. I'll tell you how when we come back. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show. It's Dr. Wendy Walsh here on KFI AM 640. Um, so we've been talking about the connection between mind and body and how we really can't deal with one unless we're dealing with the other. And one of the things that people, particularly women, worry about in their relationships is whether their partner will cheat. I say particularly women, but I know men worry about that too. In fact, research has shown that women are more likely to worry about an emotional infidelity. Yeah, that separate little online relationship you're going on there with private messages, that is more uh, disrupting to your female partner because, you know, that means you could actually fall in love. And where the heart goes, eventually the wallet goes and everything else goes. I think a lot of women know that men can separate sex from feeling. 
Although most men will report that they have much better sex when they are in love. On the other hand, men do worry about pure physical cheating. And again, go back to our anthropological past. We have concealed fertility. He could end up raising another man's genes, and he himself would fall out of evolution's chain. He has real reason to worry about this. So apparently, all we need to determine if our partner is cheating is simply to ask them if they can count from 1 to 10. Uh Uh-huh. This is true. According to a recent study published in Evolutionary Psychology, the study is called Your Cheating Voice Will Tell on You, um, undergraduate students accurately assessed whether someone had cheated on their committed partner just by listening to a recording of their voice. So here's how it went. They took recordings of people doing nothing but counting from 1 to 10. That's all they were told to do, men and women. Now, separately and not on tape, They asked them ahead of time, um, had they ever had sexual intercourse with a person outside of a previous or current exclusive committed relationship? That's very specific. Not just have you cheated, right? Uh, At some point in their lives. And And so half of this group reported that, yes, they had in fact cheated. The other half reported that they had never cheated on their partners. Then they recorded their voices, counting from one to ten. And to make it even more difficult to discern, the researchers then took that recording of the voice and made a version in a slightly higher pitch and a version in a slightly lower pitch, right? So that way you could say, well, it was all the high-pitched voices that clearly were the cheaters or all the low-pitched, even though half had cheated and half had not. And guess what they discovered? That in a statistical amount of times... People could tell who the cheater was. I should qualify that. Who the admitted cheater was. Because I'm telling you, if people lie about anything in life, it's sex. And self-report studies on sex tend to get the most liars. And now, there was one exception, by the way. Uh, even Even when these voices were manipulated, listeners got them accurately. They could tell whether they were an admitted cheater or not. Except for lower pitched female voices, which men tended to rate as more likely to cheat. Huh. You know, I heard one study once that showed that men could predict ovulation by the tone of a woman's voice. He was asked to speak on the phone with a woman, different women and rate the voices, a bunch of men, rate a bunch of women, based on who had the sexiest voice. And what they found out is that whoever they rated as having the most sexy voice actually was ovulating. And what they discovered is that women's voices get a little higher when they're ovulating. So let's compare that research to this research that says if women have a lower voice, men will rate them more likely to cheat. Huh. So therefore, if men unconsciously know she's not ovulating, he's thinking she's going out to meet somebody to get ready before the next ovulation? I don't know. Anyway, fascinating that your vocal cues can actually tell. So what happens, though, you ask your partner, are you having an affair on me? And your partner says, no, I'm not. Even though your unconscious knows the truth, you will do a cost-benefit analysis. Well, if I push this one here, he is paying half the rent. We got kids to feed. We got this. And you get all the other noise and static from the rest of your life helping you make that decision. But you're just listening to somebody count to 10. 
<laughs> Just saying. All right, let us move on. Ever thought that you're coming down with Alzheimer's? I, I think I get that feeling every other day at some point. Joey, you're too young to have ever had that thought. Uh, that's right. Yeah, not not me, but my stepfather definitely. Uh, he thinks know. he's getting Alzheimer's. I don't know if he thinks he's getting it, but it's one of his paramount fears. Is yeah. that that that's going to happen. You know, he's in that age in the in the kind of mid to upper sixties, and so it's just one of the biggest fears to you know forget and, and essentially lose everything in your life yeah. while you're there. I mean, memory loss can disrupt your life, um, whether it's Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. We know that it's a brain disease that causes a slow decline in memory, in thinking, and in reasoning skills. It affects one in eight Americans, and the number seems to have been growing. Now, for a couple reasons. Why do we have more Alzheimer's diagnosis? One is we're diagnosing it. We just had a Looney Tune grandfather a few uh, generations ago that we went, he's a Looney Tune grandfather, and it didn't get to have the diagnosis. Um, And also, we're living longer lives because we're taking better care of our physical health along the way. And so our brain is simply getting too many miles on it. And um, finally, I think there is some stuff going on with our diet and our sugar intake. So if you notice any of the following symptoms, you should probably see a doctor. So let's go through a few of them. Uh, Memory loss that disrupts your daily life. Not just like, I can't remember the name of the actor in that movie, which is the thing I do on our, I also believe that we have outsourced our memory to our iPhones, to Google, to Gmail. I can't even remember people's names, but I will search my Gmail emails and just look for the name of the company. And I come up with the person. Why remember when uh, you don't have to. You don't have to. Exactly. (laughs) So I think that's part of it, but I'm talking about memory loss, um, that's, you know, forgetting really important dates and events um, and, and inc- ooh, an increasing need to rely on memory aids. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> but I think we're dumbing ourselves down with these things. But if, if your family members are mentioning it, that you're forgetting stuff a lot, that's something. Okay. All right. Number two of the 10 early signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. Challenges in planning or solving problems. Uh, especially math. If you have trouble holding numbers in your head, working memory, I sometimes, instead of using a calculator on my phone, make myself do long addition, carry the number, take it down, uh, a long division, because I'm worried about losing those skills and having that working memory skill. Even tiny things, just see if you can do it. Um, Some people have trouble following a familiar recipe, uh, keeping track of monthly bills, I do have all of those things. I mean, am I going to have to call the doctor after this segment, Joey? I wouldn't worry. I mean, I, I have a few of these things so far, too. I open up a recipe on my phone. I start. I pull out the ingredients, and then I go back and look, and I start to measure out, and I go back and look again, and I go back, and I don't hold it in my head for long enough. But partly that's training, I hope. Has it always been the, like that for you? I mean, as long as you can remember or something to develop? No, before we had technology, I had a hundred oh, friends' yeah. phone numbers in my yeah, head. I don't doubt that. Yeah. I had many recipes <laughs> in my head. I know. But I think what they mean is familiar recipes. Like there are recipes. Like like pancakes or something? or Yeah, like I will. I don't do pancakes because I do low carb. But I have this, uh, I call it a mug muffin, but I make it in a little ramkin or a muffin cool. thing. And it is a grain-free, sugar-free muffin. And sometimes I do it with blueberries, sometimes I do it with dark chocolate chip. 
And I will just tell you right now, it's three tablespoons almond flour, one tablespoon coconut flour, uh, half a teaspoon of baking soda, one egg, a little vanilla. Mix it together with four tablespoons melted butter. There you go. I do that all the time. There, I don't have Alzheimer's. All right. Um, number three, difficulty completing familiar tasks at home, at work, or at leisure. So people with Alzheimer's often find it hard to complete daily tasks. Um, I will say that one of the things that's helped me improve is I went back to an old-fashioned handwritten to-do list. Putting things in my phone was not helping me remember them. So I bought one of those old-fashioned day timers, and on Sunday night, I transcribe by hand my schedule into it for the week and then write my to-do list because I also really love that check mark. I love to accomplish something and put that big old check mark on there. So that's really helped me with that one. Um, I should tell you that a dear, dear friend of mine, her mom has late stages Alzheimer's and can't talk anymore, doesn't recognize anybody, can't move. I didn't know your muscles become like your brain stops giving signals to your muscles. She appears to be almost paralyzed. Um, And when she was in a home, I would go pick her up and the ladies and I would lift her into the wheelchair and I would take her out for a walk. When my friend was on vacation, I would cover. And now she's just in a bed at, at, at my friend's house and she takes care of her, changes diapers. But I knew this woman when she was a glamorous woman, fashionable, coming to my dinner parties and to see how quickly that decline happened. And one of the basic tasks that she forgot to do, she would have regular conversations with people and then forget how to turn a door handle. Couldn't get out the door. Yeah. All right, when we come back, let's go through a few more of the early signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's and ensure that most of us do not have them. If you do have a few of these, you might want to see a doctor. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Let's go to the news, and I'll be right back. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. We are back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. This has been an entire two hours of body-mind, and it's not over. I think that the mind illness that we are most worried about acquiring is dementia and Alzheimer's. And so I'm going through 10 early signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. I already mentioned memory loss, challenges in planning and solving problems, difficulty completing familiar tasks at home. Number four, confusion with time or place. Oh my gosh, I think I have this too. Like, I don't even know the date today. I have to look at my phone to know the date. But then my 14-year-old knows it right away, but it's because they make her write it down at the top of each page in each class, right? So they're still writing things for memory. But if you're losing track of dates, seasons, and passage of time, um, that might be something. All right, number five, trouble understanding visual images and spatial relationships. I do not have that at all. These are people who have difficulty reading, judging distance, not good if you're driving, um, determining color or contrast. All of this makes for driving very, very dangerous. I don't have that. I have a little trouble with my night vision driving, but that's just because I have astigmatism and we don't see as well as night. And I've had that my whole life. So there you go. I never liked night driving. I need to have my glasses on for night driving. All right. Number six, early signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. New problems with words in speaking or writing. Well, because I do talk radio, I don't think I have problems speaking, do I? No. And I write. I'm okay. Although one of the things is repeating yourself. I do repeat myself, and I think partly because I'm repeating the same story to different people because I'm getting advice from different people. 
So sometimes I forget that I've told that one person the story before, and they'll say, you already told me that. <laughs> well, I, I, that, that seems pretty natural to me, I think. Yeah, yeah it yeah. happens. You're an extrovert, and sometimes I hear a thought for the very first time outside of my lips. Swear to God, that's yeah. how extroverts are. Uh, seven, misplacing things and losing the ability to retrace your steps. I definitely do not have that. As I tell my kids, every when they say, where's my, I can't find my, I always say, every item in our house has a parking space. It, if it is not in the parking space, you retrace your steps. If it is not where you've retraced your steps, then it has disappeared into the black hole of the universe. It doesn't exist. That's what I tell them because I'm very organized. Things have a parking space. Um, number eight, decreased or poor judgment. People with Alzheimer's sometimes experience changes in judgment or decision making. Uh, like they make, might make poor judgment in dealing with money. They might give large amounts to telemarketers. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, And also, they might pay less attention to grooming and keeping themselves clean. I got none of that. I just remodel my shower. I love my shower. I'm in it all the time. Um, Number nine, an early sign of Alzheimer's, withdrawal from work or social activities. Uh, People with Alzheimer's remove themselves from their hobbies, their social activities, their sports, their work projects, because they don't want to fail, because it's not so interesting to them. It doesn't keep them going anymore. Or sometimes they don't remember how to complete that task. They avoid being social. Really important you see a doctor if you're having that symptom. And finally, the 10th sign that you may have an early symptom of Alzheimer, changes in mood and personality. Well, there could be a lot of things associated with that. Menopause, menopause, uh, divorce, whatever. But the major mood and personalities of people with Alzheimer's can change. Um, They can become confused. Often the symptom is suspicious, fearful, anxious, angry. Like my friend's mom, before she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, would get into big fights with her. They were always fighting, and they didn't realize it was a symptom of Alzheimer's. So we worry. We all worry. One in eight of us are going to have Alzheimer's, and there are things that we can do to help reduce our chances, which is, I think, eat less sugar. There's been some uh, connection between plaque in the brain and plaque in the arteries and sugar. Um, And this new study says that a diet high in salt produces dementia in mice. Well, it's a mice study, but still, that's something. Well, I know, uh, you know, my my uh, stepfather. I'm sorry, I mentioned he he has a tremendous fear of this, and and actually it runs in my family, so mm-hmm. it's a concern for me as well. But I was curious, and hopefully it's not crossing any boundaries or anything. But for you, are there any conditions or diseases, illnesses that you are concerned? Joey, if there's one thing you should know about me now, you haven't been my producer long enough to know this. There is no such thing as a curveball question for me because oh. I can catch every curveball. Okay. Uh, yeah, I am deathly afraid of dying of cancer. Because both my parents died at my age of cancer. It's such a weird thing to outlive your parents, to be thinking, oh, God, at this age, my mom was dealing with round one of breast cancer chemo or this or that. Uh, So me and my doctors, we good friends. But it seems that they have discovered the gene that is involved with my insulin receptor that makes sugar stay in my bloodstream. And in case you still have old news, let me remind you, That it is not high fat that causes high cholesterol and fat. It is high sugar, starch, grains. It's pasta, bread, and rice and desserts. And so once I gave up all of those and got on good healthy fats, nut oils, avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, 
um, my blood work looks great. I have the blood of a 30-year-old. But that doesn't mean the fear disappears, you know, because I'm always afraid, like, oh, no, what if it happens to me? Mm-hmm. And uh, and we all we have to live through it. We, you know, having good mental health means feeling the fear and doing it anyway. You know, we all have to understand that part of being a human means that in our anthropological past, sudden violent death happened to almost all of us. Very few humans, even though our life span, the number of years that a human could possibly survive, has not changed in a very, very long time. Life expectancy has changed. But lifespan has been about 120 years. In fact, Joey, you should look it up. I think I read somewhere recently that it's about 125 now. They extended it, our biology, by about five years. But how many humans live that long, right? 0.0001% live that long. And so the rest of us deal with environmental influences on life expectancy. And now we happen to be at a time where we have great medicine, where we're not going to be killed by a lion at any given moment in the jungle. Uh, most of us aren't going off to wars. And so therefore, and you know, auto accidents are killing us. And it's our own behavior that's killing us. It's the opioids, it's the alcohol, it's the other drugs, it's the high sugar diet, it's the starch, it's the stress. But if we could practice good behavioral medicine, if more people had a higher rate of health literacy, we could live longer. It's estimated that 70% of cancers are preventable. Yet, if you ask the average person, Do they think cancer is mostly genetic or mostly environmental and behavioral? They will say it's mostly genetic. But I will show you because I am living proof. (laughs) I'm outliving my parents who died of cancer that it is mostly behavioral. And what is that behavior? What is a good life? It's the stuff we all know and have been told over and over again. Exercise intensively, a minimum of 30 minutes, five times a week. Uh, Reduce your stress, or have better coping mechanisms for stress. Eat a healthy, mostly plant-based diet. Plants and protein is all I eat. Plants and protein and good fats, which I mostly get from nuts and avocados. Uh, And um, have, most of all, good, healthy social relationships. What we learned earlier in the show with our neuroscientists is that the mind and the body are deeply connected. And that even touch of another person releases hormones, fires up neurotransmitters that can help us live longer. Having good, healthy relationships is a key to long life, simply put. So it's not just diet and exercise. Part of the picture is, um, as our doctors earlier in the show taught us, getting in tune with our body, letting our body speak to us what it needs and also having good, healthy social relationships. These are the things that will have us living a long, healthy, productive, mostly happy, exciting life. And that's what I plan to do. I'm not leaving you anytime soon. I'm going to be here for a very, very long time. All right. And that brings this week's version of the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show to a close. Thank you so much for being with me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You can always follow me online everywhere, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at DR, that short form for doctor, at DR Wendy Walsh.
On Wednesdays, I'm usually here with Gary and Shannon, and every Sunday I'm here from 4 to 6. You can also find my show on the iHeartRadio app, keyword Dr. Wendy. Mo Kelly is next.